So as promised, uh, tonight we're going to explore karma. I'd like to begin with um, the story of the Buddha's night of awakening. And uh, kind of the more simple version of it, he talks about uh, three dawnings of his own awakening that happened. And the first that happened for him, he was sitting under the Bodhi tree and um, he pointed his own mind to recall his own past lives. And he did this from a very concentrated mind. So it said that he was deeply absorbed and then he turned his mind in this direction. And suddenly to him, he could explore one past life, two past lives, three, five, ten, fifty, a hundred, thousands of his own past lives. And it's understood that actually for him, this was um, a new personal insight that growing up in India, he probably would, at that time, probably would have heard and maybe even held the belief that he had had past lives, but he had not remembered them himself. And so for several hours, he uh, recalled these many, many past lives. And he saw that in this life, he had a name and parents and a job, and he lived in this area, liked certain foods, didn't like other foods, dressed this way, dressed that way. Some other life, all those things were different. And then another life, they're all different. And so he was recalling his own mind stream, uh, going back through uh, countless past lives, and sort of that was news to him. That was sort of his own personal recollection of his past lives. And that was, a, was sort of a, a game changer for him. That was sort of, for him, hearing about it is one thing, but actually recovering the memories was another. For us, that's probably a bit of a stretch to imagine doing that. We've, you know, probably it, uh, now that Buddhism and Hinduism have come into our culture more than they have uh, in the past, we're more comfortable with those ideas, but they're still not our cultural beliefs. They're not strong cultural beliefs we have. So we might have a personal feeling about that. But at the time in India, that was sort of the, the belief that there were multiple past lives. So he has this first recollection. And then he spends several hours um, with a new insight is he can see many people's past lives. He can see the arising and passing of many people in all these different situations, not just himself. So he sees it's a universal. People are arising, they're being born, and they're dying, and then being born again and dying. And he gets to see uh, countless people going through that. And what he learns <clears throat> through that investigation is actually that karma is driving that process. How they behaved, the actions they did, the quality of their heart and mind in a particular life was a big determinant factor over where they uh, were reborn next. And so he saw that and spent hours studying that that night. So that also changed his perspective and seeing that the quest that he had started out with, how do I overcome this process of suffering? How do I overcome the process of aging and dying? And then theoretically being reborn again, he's now witnessing it. 
and he's seeing that uh, this actual is the behavior of one life, that is the big determinant over how and where you're reborn. And if you behave well, if you act well, if you have a beautiful heart, you tend to be reborn in uh, good circumstances or maybe even uh, heavenly realms. And if you behave badly, and if your heart is full of evil or um, woeful states or uh, unwholesome states, you can be reborn in uh, the hell realms or in um, uh, difficult circumstances. And so that's a large part of his awakening process, this understanding of multiple lives and this understanding that uh, how one behaves is a big determinant factor over where one is reborn. His third awakening that night is understanding that the process that brings this um, karmic rebirthing to an end is the Four Noble Truths, is that understanding suffering states, understanding the depth of uh, suffering and disappointment, even if you're reborn in beautiful places, it doesn't last. Understanding that uh, ignorance conditions craving and craving conditions clinging and that sets up the whole process of struggling. That that process can be brought to an end and that the Eightfold Path is a way to bring it to an end. It's a way to actually train yourself to come out of those deep patterns. That was his third insight of the night of his awakening. And upon that insight, as Sally said, he understood that he would not take another birth, that he'd caught, he had stopped this karmic process from rolling on that he'd been caught in, uh, and all the people he could uh, see through his mind had, were caught in, and that theoretically we're caught in. I mean, it may, not be theory, <laughs> it may not be theory, but to us, there's a sense that, okay, for some of us, we're contemplating this as a possibility. Some people in this room probably already comfortable with that, and some people not so much. So the Four Noble Truths, as he came into his own awakening, was to solve this dilemma of this very deep conditioning brought about through karma that was causing people to be reborn over and over and over. Um, And that was new. The first two, there was already beliefs about past lives, future lives. There was already a cultural belief in karma, which he had a refinement on. But understanding that the Four Noble Truths was the solution to just being reborn over and over again, that was sort of a new insight. So that's really his contribution to Indian thought. It was not so much multiple lives or um, a general understanding of karma. And so when we talk about karma tonight, um, knowing, uh, knowing some of you, I know already that some people don't really have um, a need for this, don't really reflect upon it, that understanding multiple lives and karma played out this way, is they don't, people don't find it useful, it's speculative, it's, you know, it's questionable. And there are some of you where it's not questionable, it's already a deep intuition that... Um, this is really how things are happening. The nice thing is that both, no matter what your view is about multiple lives and karma being the driving of that, <clears throat> the solution is the same. 
that we come into our mind stream and we learn to clean it up. And that cleans up both the here and now and the suffering we generate here and now. And it also generates the suffering that we create for ourselves down the road. And whether down the road is in this life or in multiple lives. So the solutions of being the same, but how you want to hold the context of karma, multiple lives, and the outcome of actions. Um, so I'll talk about those and uh, you can do with it as you wish. <clears throat> when I went over to um, Burma, I was going for the practice and I really wasn't going for the culture. I, I mean, I love traveling, but I wasn't going to become Burmese. I was going because I really love this practice and those are great conditions to study and to meditate. And even when I ordained, um, I didn't ordain and then therefore take on a whole belief system. I was raised in a scientific household with uh, neuroscientists and I pretty much adopted that worldview growing up. It um, seemed sane. So <laughs> it was just that it's a material world. We have a material brain and it kind of does its thing with all of its neurons and it generates this experience we're having. And even though I'd gone fairly deep into Dharma practice, um, I was I was suspicious of things that felt like magic or felt like um, wishful thinking. It just it didn't accord with my experience. And luckily I was told, well, it doesn't have to. So keep practicing and benefiting from it. And so I went over to Burma, even when I was uh, again ordained, I didn't take on the belief system. I was fairly skeptical and wanted proof of these things before I would sign the contract. <clears throat> but one of the things that was helpful about being in the Pauk Monastery and being in the country of Burma in general is that I began to see how much my beliefs were cultural. Like it felt like they were truth and everybody I talked to agreed with me. And because everybody agreed with me, we kind of felt like we had cornered the truth. Like, yeah, this is how it is. And people who don't believe this way are still um, caught up in some you know, magical thinking. But being in another country is great because it shows you how much of your assumptions that everybody's operating under um, are really assumptions. And so you get to question yourself on a deeper level. And so to be in a country that, uh, that doesn't have doubt about this and that um, it's their operating platform, that there are multiple lives and karma is a big part of how you influence your future. Um, <clears throat> I began to see I was standing on belief. I wasn't standing on data. I wasn't standing on scientific research. I was standing on just com- the comfort of my belief system so that would sort of softened my relationship to karma, multiple lives, um, the magic element of karma that we'll I'll talk about a bit. But then I began talking to people who had spent years, if not decades, studying their minds. And <clears throat> the things they knew, they knew so well. And one of the things that they knew well was karma and past lives. So they had studied to a point where they also could go into very deep states of absorption, point their mind in the question of, you know, can I remember my past lives? And then they would recover them. And depending on the depth of their concentration, they would remember one, two, three, five, ten, twenty of their own past lives. And so they would study that. 
And I was like, well, how do you know that? And like, why isn't it a dream? And I was very, I was very skeptical, asked them challenging questions, but I got to talk to many of them. And um, they, just as I, you know, we could all talk about the lunch we had yesterday, they could talk about their past lives. It was coherent, it was steady, uh, it wasn't ephemeral. Um, they couldn't change it. They couldn't dream up a new past life. Not all of them were Cleopatra. <laughs> Not all of them had come up with something uh, fanciful. You know what I'm going to say, but I can't say it. This one guy <clears throat> had um, remembered his past 10 lives, and they were all as elephants. And so he kept going back and, whoop, another elephant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another elephant. Mm-hmm. Wow, another elephant. Mm-hmm. God, another elephant. And so <clears throat> you can see the power of the momentum that he had. And it's kind of funny, when you know that about him, uh, he's kind of like a human elephant. He was very, he had sort of a larger body, very steady, hard to ruffle. Um, like, oh, I see that, those elephant patterns in you. <laughs> <clears throat> and these, these folks, whether, again, whether you believe people can do this or not, I, I trust them, and I don't know how it's true. But they were so clear on so many things, and so helpful, and so insightful, that for them to take on a whole belief system without having questioned it, and explored it with, a, with rigor, it just wasn't the way they were going about their beliefs in truth. And so they, they saw that actually the, uh, how the, what they had cultivated had set up the arising of some future event. The quality of their heart that had gone into an action had, had a huge impact over what came down the road. So again, I, I was just standing on cultural beliefs. They had done this research and they had discovered something. So... Again, it's not sort of ironclad proof, but um, it had a big impact. And then it opened my mind to the possibility that this is true. So some of the workings of karma is, you can actually study it, you can actually see it in your own life. And some of it takes on a bit of a mystical quality, like you can't quite understand how it works that way. And either that bothers you or it doesn't. Um, But there are these... uh, several ways that you can actually understand how karma works. What the Buddha taught that was sort of, again, unique to him was that he believed in a completely lawful universe and he believed that things you experienced, that everybody experienced, arose out of causes and conditions. So if you experienced um, good fortune, or if you experienced something difficult, that arose out of the ripening of conditions. And it wasn't so much as was the common belief that there were uh, many gods and deities that you could pray to, and they would be causing, they would be interfering with your life, and you had to appease them if they weren't happy. That was a very common belief at the time. And his understanding is actually the the universe is... um, running on these laws of cause and effect, of which karma is one of them. And he said, that's where you need to put your attention. That's where you need to, if you want to improve your patterns of happiness or suffering, 
You need to apply yourself to what you're cultivating in your heart and mind more than paying more money for an even greater animal sacrifice to hope you'll have an even better future. You need to look at the quality of your heart and mind and um, see if you can let go of greed, hatred, and delusion and practice other qualities, the opposite. And you said that will actually have an impact on your happiness both here and now and in the future, later on in life and then in future lives if you believe in that. Understanding how karma works, how it operates, um, the analogy uh, of uh, planting a seed and growing a fruit is a good one. And it can, it can hold the complexity of karma. So you take one seed and you plant it, and if it's a strong seed, if it's a good, strong seed, you plant it in the ground, and it'll just wait there. And the seed waits there until the conditions are right. And each seed knows when the conditions are right for it, which is why flowers bloom at different times of the year. Each one has a set of conditions that it ripens under. Some seeds can stay dormant for uh, hundreds of years because the conditions aren't right for them to germinate. And yet if you put the, um, if you change the conditions, they will germinate. So out of an action, there is um, the planting of seeds. And then those seeds remain dormant until the conditions are right for those seeds to ripen. Those seeds ripen into a set of future conditions, you know, a future present moment, and you eat the fruit of it. And if it was, uh, you know, if it was a apple seed, you get to eat apples later. And if it was some bitter seed, you would eat the bitter fruit down the road. So the seeds remain dormant until the conditions are right, and then they bloom. The blooming of that fruit, the word is called uh, vipaka. So you have karma is what sets something in motion. And then the ripening of it down in the future is a word called vipaka. The fruit contains more seeds, many more seeds. And so you can multiply your karma depending if you uh, eat that fruit and then act upon whatever that fruit was based in, anger or love or kindness, generosity, fear. And then you can propagate it so that many more seeds go into the ground, many more fruit arise, and then many more fruit, seeds go into the ground, many more fruit arise when the conditions are right. Even the Buddha, after his awakening, received the fruit of previous unskillful actions. So it said that he had, uh, later on in his life, he had a very strong, painful ache in his back from when in a previous life he had been a wrestler and he had um, over-wrestled. <laughs> he had been aggressive with his wrestling and he had broken the back of his opponent. And through that violent action, even though he was fully awakened, he still was receiving the fruit of previous actions. So awakening doesn't uh, stop you from receiving the fruit. Awakening does, though, uh, nullify the planting of new fruit to ripen later, the planting of new seeds 
And again, I'll talk about that. When you're sitting here minding your own business and you're with your breath and it's, you know, it's a pleasant sitting, partly what you're experiencing is the fact that you've been here cultivating that and uh, at some point the conditions are right and you feel the, the benefit of that, of that cultivation, you know, being here for many days and weeks. So you're receiving the fruit of that practice that's maybe the arising of uh, tranquility. And you're sitting there, and then your mood begins to shift. And the mood begins to shift, and then something else begins to arise. Maybe it's fear, or doubt, or fatigue. Through this theory, what's understood is that the conditions are right to produce as much tranquility as you experienced. And then that's as much as could be could be grown at that time. And then the conditions shift. And when they shift, something else ripens. And that's what you end up experiencing. So you can stay kind of passive in that mode and just watch things ripen one after another. But if you adopt the attitude of um, receiving the rising anger that you have, for example, but you don't push it, you don't agree with it, you don't stoke the flames of that anger. You're receiving the past fruit of anger. It's ripening, but you're not reinforcing it when it comes. Yet if you receive tranquility and you do appreciate it and you do uh, uh, understand it with your mindfulness and you have a supportive attitude, this old uh, cultivation of tranquility through many, many hours of being here, begins to ripen. And there's tranquility in the heart and mind, and you support it. That's actually uh, taking it, so both enjoying the fruit of what you've cultivated, and you're planting the seeds by whether you um, encourage it. So what you encourage in your heart and mind actually is a karmic act. If you encourage the anger that's arisen, you agree with it and you kind of stomp around in your mind and that person was wrong, I'm so right, blah, 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 blah. While you're doing that, you're reinforcing the karmic pattern of anger, which means down the road, you'll receive, uh, not, not definitely, but you're, it's easier to receive anger in the future. You'll more likely be angry in the future because you stoke the fires of the anger that arose in a particular moment. So this is a more uh, personal experience of karma, the karma here and now, the karma that you can see in meditation. It's not your fault necessarily that you can only be concentrated for so long before something else arises. That's just the shifting conditions. But how you relate to what's arising is partly what you're setting up for in that moment and also down the road again through this law of karma. The beginning, the beginning of the Dhammapada, which is a, a collection of sayings of the Buddha, the very first of this collection goes like this. All mental phenomena have mind as their forerunner. They have mind as their chief 
they are mind made. If one speaks or acts with an evil mind, suffering, dukkha, follows him or her just as the wheel follows the hoofprint of the ox that draws the cart. So in that, um, a few things get drawn out. One, the experiences that we're having generate in the heart and the mind. You know, it it feels often like um, the outside world is generating our experiences and we're kind of passive receivers of it. But so much of what I'm actually experiencing is already filtered by and understood in my own heart. So you all are here and I'm looking at you and there's sort of, oh, I know you, I know you. And so as I'm kind of looking out, it's a visual experience, but I'm the, the textures that I'm experiencing beyond just the visual that you are providing, that's generated in my heart. And if through that I start to act out of uh, a heart or a mind that's confused or fearful or greedy, um, manipulative, then what follows that, as it's saying here, uh, is, uh, is suffering. And the images of a wheel that follows the hoofprint of an ox that draws the cart. In contrast, the second verse says, all mental phenomena have mind as their forerunner. They have mind as their chief, they are mind made. If one speaks or acts with a pure mind, happiness or sukha follows him or her like the shadow that never leaves him or her. So just to contrast those two, one, you have an image of a wheel that's drawn behind uh, an ox. And the other is of a shadow that follows you. <clears throat> In those two images, you can feel the, uh, the image of the burden that an ox is drawing this cart. Usually the cart is laden with a heavy load. And so the suffering that follows you, follows you like the cart. You speak and act in certain ways that are not skillful, and then you inherit the suffering from that. You inherit the burden of that. Again, as I was in Burma, um, I saw a lot of ox cart trails when we were leaving the monastery. Uh, About the same time, sunrise, the ox carts would be going out from the villages out to the the farmlands. And with the ox carts walking down this road over many hundreds of years, the ruts were quite deep and the wheels would sort of roll down the rut. And so the ox is pulling it, but you can get a sense that um, the wheel of this type of suffering has created a groove. And the ox is maybe not that smart or cunning. And so it's plodding along and this it's carrying this heavy load behind it. And that's the, uh, the suffering that we have generated for ourselves through our actions. And in contrast, the happiness that falls is like a shadow that never leaves. And the shadow is light, it's weightless, it's following you, and so you're walking towards the light, towards clarity. And what is a byproduct of that is this lightness, this lightness of being that grows out of uh, kind actions, 
Kunk grows out of a beautiful heart. Getting a little more technical about how karma works. The shift that the Buddha gave was that the uh, karma is not determined by the action you take. And that is, that is how it was held at the time. There are many dialogues he has with people who are trying to understand karma and they have their hardened beliefs and they're kind of checking it with him or they have questions about karma. But the way that they hold karma uh, is that by this action, there should be this outcome. And I don't see that being true. Or uh, someone might say, this is definitely the way things are. You act this way and you should have a positive outcome. And the Buddha can challenge them that just to open their minds some. But when he teaches about karma, he talks about uh, the role of intention, the role of motivation behind the action. And as people who have done a lot of practice, like you all have in this room, uh, you have been experiencing that. More than most people on the planet, you know what it's like when your heart is more open, more clear, and the type of uh, activities that flow out of that. The actions that follow, um, that turn into karma, are mental actions, uh, speech, and physical actions. So you've already seen this. I'm not sure if you've highlighted it in, in your own experience, but what is it like in those moments when your heart is free, when your heart is kind, when your heart is generous or wise? And then you start acting from that. That's where the Buddha wanted us to put our attention, on the internal heart and mind that's generating and inspiring the actions we're undertaking. What you've probably seen is that your motives are mixed, especially when it comes to physical action. By the time you do anything, I can just go to ring the bell, and by the time I lift this up and strike it once, many motivations might have come up. And it could be start with a simple one, and then <clears throat> I worry if I'm gonna hit it too loud, and then I wonder how the, you guys are gonna receive that, and then I wonder if I'm looking good when I'm doing it, <laughs> and there are like many things just in this simple action. And I might want to hit it softly so I don't disturb you. I might want to hit it softly because I'm afraid of making noise. I might want to hit it loud. There are multiple um, motivations going into this simple action. And that's the physical action. But the same is true through speech. And the same is, through, is true in how we respond to our own internal mental or heart experience. So if you're with your breath and your mind wanders and you yank your attention back out of anger and frustration, that's a karmic act. You're reinforcing harshness inside, which means that you've, harshness has arisen and rather than checking it, which you have to be very fast to do. You, and so let's look at this a little closer. You're sitting there in meditation and you're with your breath and your mind wanders. You realize it wan it's wandering, and so you go to bring it back. If you have an underlying belief that it's bad that your mind has wandered, or you're not a good yogi, at this point your mind shouldn't wander. If that type of belief is there, that sets the conditions for which harsh or doubtful 
actions will arise. So with those beliefs operating, you can then yank your attention back and uh, apply more ferocious willpower. I will be with my breath. I won't let my mind wander. And you're starting to build a whole climate inside of tension and self-aggression, of doubt, comparison. So you're, you're actually cultivating that when you're doing meditation practice, cultivating your own suffering, both there and in the future. If on the other hand, you realize your mind has wandered and a thought arises, oh, it's not good, but you catch it. You catch that, the ripening of that thought. It's not okay that my mind has wandered, but you see it as an aggressive thought. You see it as a harsh thought, the tone of it. And before you act, you shift the tone. So it could happen quickly and you go, oh, tire of this wandering mind. And you go to yank your attention back, which would be an action, an internal action. It's like, actually, I'm not going to put that in motion. I'm just going to soften my attitude right here. Minds wander. That's what they do. I can, I can be compassionate here and be patient. Then you come back to your breath. You're, one, not allowing that old fruit to ripen, eat it, and become seeds for future frustration, you've intervened. And instead, you've caused a different climate. You've run, you're ripening patience. You're cultivating patience. You're cultivating wisdom. So through that internal attitude adjustment, even as a simple internal act, like how you return back to the breath, how you stay with the breath, do you stay with the breath by gripping out of fear of wandering and failing at meditation? Do you hold the breath loosely because you've kind of given up? And so you're called to think like, yeah, I'm with the breath, but it doesn't really matter. I'm not really getting anywhere anyhow. So breathe in, breathe out, wandering mind. I heard that's okay. So you, you're passive. You're cultivating a sort of a sleepy state. And you come in and you find what's this, what, what is the best way to be with the breath, both in the moment but that moment becomes a cultivation of what you'll experience down the road. You're with the breath, you're loyal to it, your mind wanders because the conditions shift, you're kind about that, you bring it back. All that is the cultivation of karma. And you can tell by it's the quality of heart and mind guiding your practice. Done over time, that becomes what uh, practice feels like. And it's hard because as James talked about, we do have internal harsh critics. We already have patterns laid down that will make us reactive, that will make us judge our experience. And if we allow those tapes to keep running without challenging them, we're eating the bitter fruit of previous conditions where we laid down some self-judgment. And if we kind of buy into it in that moment, then we're planting the seeds for a future self-judgment. So these are internal mechanisms that when they're not checked, they run and they guide our internal experience. And you can intervene and cultivate something different.
There's a young member of my family who, um, one of my sister's kids, and she has five of them. And one thing I learned by being an uncle is that we come into this life already with a lot of our own personality developed, even by the time we're born. And then due to circumstances, certain patterns get reinforced, certain ones shift and evolve. Um, One of my nieces came in and she just had a lot of rage in her. And she was only happy when my sister would hold her, but she just had a lot of rage. And through a lot of beautiful, steady, careful, loving from my sister, slowly that began to change and open. And then she had a much more trusting relationship by about the time she was two, three, but by the time she was four, a lot of uh, happiness grew in her and she was not so fearful, not so enraged as she was when a little kid. So a question might come up, like where does all that anger come from? When she was just a little baby, just born, um, she didn't have a lot of that cooing and a lot of that sense of tranquility and relaxation. Um, in our culture, we might talk about you know DNA and what happened when she was conceived and what happened in the womb. In terms of how the Buddha saw uh, life after life and how patterns are constructed, we carry over patterns from one life to the next. So that's one way of looking at it. We carry over these deep patterns and they arise in our next life. So the patterns you have in this life, the deepest ones have been generated like the guy who was an elephant 10 times. Your own patterns, you're born with them and then they start operating and they get reinforced or they get changed either in a positive direction or in the um, unfortunate direction So uh, one of these young kids um, had kind of a a trickster mentality and didn't like following the rules very much, Um, kind of a rebel. And there was a side of that that we all kind of liked and thought she was a character. Um, But circumstances uh, went in the challenging direction for her and for my sister. And... it kept slipping and her response to those situations also kept slipping. And so worse and worse behavior started coming out of her. And then uh, kind of a very difficult year happened for her family and she fell into a really strong drug use, uh, dropped out of high school. And it was astonishing to watch this and we were all trying to stop this from happening but something was ripening from within her. And again, you can either use the multiple life model that something had been latent in her for previous lives, or you could look at it early on who she was, but under these circumstances, much more um, of what was unfortunate and unwholesome in her heart and mind began to thrive. And it was just harder to see that good side of her. And she became kind of... um, caught into lying and stealing and um, no one could trust her. And because we didn't, it was harder to love her in those circumstances, she felt unseen, that led to reactivity. And so in understanding of karma, 
um, there were these latent uh, capacities in her that under unfortunate circumstances, they began to thrive. And as they began to thrive, they themselves began to be more and more of the problem. So out of difficult circumstances, she started lying. Out of lying, we started mistrusting her, and then she felt that. And that made her be more kind of conniving. And so it was a bit of a runaway situation, and we couldn't figure out how to stop it. I've done a lot of work with youth, and so I have experience in this area. But when someone's underlying patterns begin to um, flourish in in the unfortunate direction, it can be hard from the outside to do much about it. You you can do your best to change the outside circumstances, but these uh, dormant seeds under harsh circumstances began to thrive. And then finally, we were able to um, intervene and shift her outside circumstances, held her through a time where there was a lot of um, difficult things ripening in her. That began to die down, and then these other tendencies of hers began to come back to life and began to thrive and began to be more of her operating system. So what we all have in us, we all have in us uh, the karmic potential through this life or many lives, if you want to think that way, that depending on how our external circumstances are, will go one way or the other. And so it's wonderful to have supportive circumstances because that allows your beautiful karmic seeds to ripen. But when external circumstances shift, those internal dormant states of anger and fear, they can come back. Which is part of the motivation of doing this practice is that we want to make it more and more difficult for fear and anger and jealousy and um, all the really powerful difficult states that are right now dormant in us, we want to make it uh, first impossible for them to ripen. That's one level of your own awakening. Just when your other, strength, your other capacities are so strong that it's hard for anger to really get a foothold on you. A second level of awakening is when you go down into that karmic field, wherever that is, and you end up, that there's a description here of... Uh, going into the field where all these seeds are and burning them with the flame so they turn to ash. And that's part, of the, uh, that's part of the awakening process. That's part of the enlightenment process. The karmic seeds that can go into the negative direction, and even the ones that can go in the positive direction, end up being um, nullified. That happens through the insight practice when you see, when you change your understanding and wisdom becomes stronger, and when you change the capacity to love and to forgive, as those become stronger, you can feel that old resentments weaken, the potential for old resentments. Somebody who teased me in high school, if I bumped into a gem, they would, you know, there'd be that old resentment. Oh, I remember you, you're that guy, who teased me for years. So it's not that active, but it's, it's not gone yet, because I actually haven't gone in to actually nullify that. I've worked on it some, but if he was still a jerk today, I'd be like, you're that same jerk. <laughs> and so I could easily have that come back to life. 
So right now I'm just I'm keeping that one dormant. <laughs> but there actually does come a point where you so understand your own heart and mind that you're you get washed with forgiveness. And you don't have to work at it in that moment. You can cultivate it. You can you know do beautiful forgiveness phrases, and that helps. But there there does come a point where the mind lets go on some level. And then all the karma that was sort of embedded in not letting go, in clinging to your beliefs or sense of self, it all gets washed out when you let go of that layer of self. That comes from wisdom practices, that comes from the ability to let go, to surrender, to feel things. As you feel them, you purify, and then they're no longer in your system. We've just started practicing the equanimity practice this afternoon. And there are multiple phrases that people use um, to try to tune into that beautiful heart space of warm, non-reactive love. One of the classic ones is that um, it goes, uh, beings are the heir to their karma. So if you have this understanding of karma, that's one of the ways that people would come into that warm space. That as much as I love you from the outside and want the best things for you, the best future that's possible for you will come through your own relationship to your actions, the own cultivation of your heart, the patterns you're setting up inside, and whether they are coming from uh, wisdom and generosity and kindness versus greed, hatred, and delusion. This is actually a very empowering model. Nobody can harm you from the outside as much as you can harm you from the inside, either through being critical or harsh or cruel to yourself. But as you cultivate your own heart and mind, you're you're setting yourself up for the future you're going to have because that future will come through the heart and mind, as it says, All experiences are filtered by and understood through your own heart. And so rather than changing the outside world, we're developing this internal, wise, loving, balanced heart. So it's in your hands, your future, your happiness. Through this understanding of karma, it's actually in your hands. I remember when I was first doing the equanimity practice, um, and I was <clears throat> using one of the yogis in front of me that I didn't know so well. And so they were a neutral person. And I started reflecting on this. Um, beings are the heir to their karma. Their happiness and misfortune are not dependent upon my wishes, but upon their actions. And it shifted the sense of like, oh, I really want the best for you and I love you and I see you having a good future and I want this for you and all this prayer and wanting and wishing for other people to a sense of what I can actually do for you is to support you in making better decisions and doing better actions. But your happiness is an inside job. 
I saw this time and again when I was working in the homeless shelter for uh, teenagers. And we might get seven people making a case plan for this one teenager and trying to help them from the outside. And we had a nurse working on their health and we had social workers and we had people helping them, tutoring them in school and somebody else to help them with their police report and all the support from the outside. But if inside there was still a karmic knot, someone was stuck in a karmic pattern, it, couldn't, it wouldn't really translate. We could temporarily help from the outside, but it wouldn't take because there was still an operating system inside that you have to shift. And so this understanding of karma can lead to this loving equanimity that I want to support you. I want to do what I can to help you. And as teachers, this is what we're trying to put the tools in your hand. But it's in your hand. This path and this practice is in your hands. Um, And you can be helped from the outside, but it's really the taking of it inside that changes what's growing inside as you actually practice. The really good news is that um, the month you've been here, you've all been doing that, whether you believe it or not. And so you now have in your, wherever those seeds are, wherever those seeds end up being dormant and then coming to fruition later on. All the work you've done here has not been lost. All the many times you've been here making those decisions to return to your breath or understand your mind or go into some dark place and breathe there and be patient there and untangle some of the habits and patterns that are lurking with that memory or that part of your heart or mind, your fear of your future, you go in there and rather than having it propagating, you begin to see it as uh, something that's arisen from previous conditions and now it's arising again. And you don't plant it again. This is old fear arising, but I'm holding it now with patience and courage and faith. The same scenario, I'm worried about what will happen after the retreat. And rather than fear being your operating system, arising as a past condition, trying to solve a future. You're setting up new conditions where there is faith and you have the practice and you know how to come back to your breath when your mind gets crazy. So you now have this karmic patterning inside of you. This is the beautiful side of karma. It's not lost on you. Um, And you can trust that. You can trust that your time spent here um, has put so many very powerful seeds And if you keep cultivating them, they do grow. They do come into fruition. And you get to both eat the sweet fruit of your own practice. And then that's another chance to plant those seeds and keep propagating your wisdom and patience, kindness, tranquility, uh, joy, kindness to others. All those beautiful, beautiful qualities. They're not lost. And the last thing to say is that <clears throat> as we act out of a kind heart or act out of a, a heart that's agitated and unwholesome, it only sets up the potential for impacting the future. So if I do an action 
that's generous or I do an action that's cruel, the karmic impact on the future is a potential. It still needs conditions for that potential to ripen. So things you did as a kid that maybe you regret, that may have put certain karma into motion. But if it's dormant now, it doesn't necessarily have to arise. And again, we can make it more difficult for unskillful actions to ripen into our future and for beautiful actions of the past to ripen by maybe calling them up through memory or uh, seeing that by the steady practice of the Brahma Viharas that you've been doing every day, that that actually does begin to build a momentum that you can feel and you can begin, not begin, but you can keep stoking those flames with intention so that as loving kindness arises, you can intend to keep practicing it. You can intend to later on communicate it. You can intend to later on act upon it if it's about people who aren't here. And you can put that karma in motion. So again, as a culture, I don't know where any of you would stand with uh, karma. Whether you believe in it strongly as an intuition, whether you believe you could do a beautiful act and it's there and then it doesn't have any impact in the future. One of the things it does do is that as we act upon uh, our beautiful intentions, they strengthen within us. And so that's sort of the non-mystical karma, that as I follow through on my generosity, I follow through on my wisdom, I follow through on my kindness, I can feel that, and I can feel that build momentum. In uh, countries that believe in karma, in cultures that believe in karma, there is this sense that I could be kind to you when I was 12 and receive a benefit of that when I'm 92. And somehow there's a link between those two actions. That's something as a culture that we may have an intuition around, but not understanding how that happens. But that's also, that's more that when we'll talk about magic, the, the magic of karma, how does that happen? And some people say it doesn't. And some people say, oh yeah, I can see that, that there is this intuitive link between kind actions and kind results um, down the road. Again, one of the things that was great about <clears throat> being in the Pauk Monastery is that um, people told these stories where they actually could track their karma from one life to the next. And so I'll, I'll just leave you with that as a possibility. You can ponder about it and see if it's possible or not, just to reflect upon it. Um, <clears throat> it's one friend of mine who was doing this study of karma um, he once <clears throat> received a mango out of the blue. We were all going through the lunch line and someone gave him a mango kind of out of the blue. He said, okay, well, here's kind of a boon. Here's kind of a beautiful thing. What's the karma behind this receiving a mango? And he went in and he could do this past life recall and study the karma of it. And he saw that in some previous life, he had actually given um, uh, one of the Buddha's monks a, a mango. He'd been a lay person and he generated that. And now in this next life, 
he had also received a mango, very one-to-one. So it was interesting. So, you know, for him that was starting, he was also walking down a path and um, uh, he brushed against a bush and it had ants on it. And this ant, this ants got on him, this one ant bit him and it was really painful. And so he did his past life recall and tried to see where the karma had come from to be bitten by this ant. And he saw an image of himself um, uh, thrusting a spear into somebody else's chest during a war. But he, of all the life that he had discovered, um, he'd never seen that one. So his, his understanding was that it was an even further back life that he, had, that he had discovered. But he was still being bitten by ants in this life because he had done a violent act uh, in many, many, many past lives. Um, so that's that kind of mystical karma. And if you have faith in karma, maybe you don't need to understand how that works, but you can say, yeah, I, I believe that, that that happens. It's definitely true in uh, traditionally Buddhist cultures like Burma, Thailand, India, that there is this belief that it works that way, that if you're generous, it not only impacts you in that moment, it not only changes your life, as you can see by being generous and cultivating that, but generosity done in one place inspires some kind or generous or um, beautiful event to happen to you later in some other place. And for that, many of us just need intuition. If we're going to relate to it all, it's hard to prove other than intuitive feeling that um, maybe that's true. Maybe that is coming from karma. So I'll let you find your own relationship to that. And again, as we're practicing here over the next few days, or if you're staying longer for the next month, all of this reflection on karma, whether you believe it, going across multiple lives, deep into the future, having this mystical or magic possibility, whether it's something much more practical, and you can see that cultivating generosity and kindness as an internal experience, then acting upon that, and I can see how that ripples out, it does all come back to mindfulness with your heart as it is in the present moment and seeing what's arising and if it's worth it, if it, what's arising is beautiful, can I support it? Can I encourage it? And what's arising feels like it's uh, not helpful. It feels like it's clouding your mind, agitating your mind, it's harmful thoughts. How do you skillfully let that go and not reinforce it? So both the practical view of karma and the more mystical view of karma come back to the same place of knowing your heart and mind moment by moment and being careful about how the heart and mind you have generates actions. And if the heart is, is pure, the actions that come out of it usually are pure. And if the heart is mixed, the actions and their results will be mixed. If the heart's in a really confused place, um, be careful of acting out of that. That's usually where harmful speech happens or where very confused thoughts become confused realities. And that we can see. That we can see with our own mindfulness practice. So with that, if you would close your eyes, settle into your posture for a moment.
The power of your own awakening is in your hands. This is the teaching of karma. If you can be loyal and dedicate yourself to this practice, your own full awakening will be a true and lawful karmic event. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.